Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Have you ever heard of people talking about hitchhiking in the 1970s? And then they'll follow it up with saying, well, it was a lot safer then. You can't do that now. I remember when I was a child hearing my aunt say that. It wasn't safe then, and it's not safe now. Serial killer Edmund Kemper, also known as the co-ed killer and the co-ed butcher, he began using the roads as his human hunting ground in 1972, picking up young women, luring them into a false sense of security, and then brutally ending their lives. He murdered long before this, though. His first murders took place when he was only 15 years old. At this age, he shot and killed his own grandparents. Six years later, he was deemed to be rehabilitated and was not only released from a psychiatric facility for the criminally insane, but then soon after, taken off probation. That same day, he was deemed no longer to be a threat to himself or society. He left that appointment and drove away, all the while with a human head in the trunk of his car. How did he fool so many people? There is a content warning on this week's episode, as I will be talking about sexual assault, necrophilia, body dismemberment, and the lewd nature of, in my opinion, one of the most disturbing serial killers in American history. Keep doing whatever you're doing and hang out with me while I talk true crime. Everybody heard that content warning for this week's case, I hope. It is a, it's, yeah, it's a very graphic case and I will do my best to keep the accuracy of his crimes in a palatable form, but there is really no way in doing that. That is an impossible, that is an impossible task. So be warned and I will give trigger warnings as I go. The truly horrifying thing about Edmund Kemper is that he is soft-spoken articulate, composed, and he has an IQ of 145, which that classifies him as a bit of a genius, but he is a loaded gun with the safety off, bouncing around on a roller coaster in the hands of a child. He can turn on you in a single second and you wouldn't stand a chance because he's almost seven feet tall and 300 pounds. That's right. He stands at six foot, nine inches tall. He is massive, menacing, evil, violent, sick human being who will constantly fool you into thinking he has redeemable qualities. He is a serial killer who committed, how could a serial killer who committed the most depraved crimes against women possibly seem redeemable, you may ask? Well, we'll talk about that later. First, I want to start at the beginning of his life and see what possibly shaped this monster. Many people, they believe that he was he was born this way and others believe he was created by his traumatic upbringing. Then you have those who believe he was born this way, uh, but his traumatic childhood sealed his fate. Meaning, had he been raised in a better, more loving environment, he may have been able to refrain from becoming a murdering monster. I have my own theory and I have not read this theory anywhere. When researching Edmund Kemper, I kept reading his father was a World War II vet, and after the war, he worked as a nuclear weapons tester. Uh, Then he went on to become an electrician when he moved to California, and that's when he had three children with the woman he married named Clarnell. One of those children was Edmund Kemper, and he was the only born son. He had two sisters, one younger, one older. When Edmund was born, he weighed a whopping 13 pounds. Ouch. That is a massive baby. And this was foreshadowing to how big he would grow to be because he, large man. So this got me thinking, his father would have been around radiation. And I thought maybe this had something to do with Edmund being born so massive, so intelligent, so violent, so sick. Like this was a birth defect caused by his father being around nuclear weapons. His father was also a big man, I should say. So maybe it was just genes. His father was over six, six foot tall as well. But then I had a thought, like, who knows 
what else the government was testing around soldiers or having them test, you know. Uh, Later, Edmund Kemper speaks about these uncontrollable urges eating him up inside and that he couldn't ignore and therefore he had to kill. He called it his fantastic passion. What does any country want from their soldiers? They want bloodlust. They want strong, smart, strategic killing machines. And that's exactly what Edmund was. He was not insane. He was actually quite rational, strategic, and intelligent. The crimes he commits and the way he carries them out seem to show a mixture of completely insane rage mixed with extreme, volatile, unforgiving actions, yet planned and executed without insanity. This is what makes Edmund so dangerous. His actions are that of a violent, insane person, but he is not insane. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he went to great lengths to cover up his tracks, He meaning he knows right from wrong. He has a way of only showing a calm, relaxed, gentle state, and then once alone or isolated with his victim, in the blink of an eye, he, he could be stabbing that young woman to death, cutting off her head and defiling her body before dismembering her and scattering the body parts around limb by limb a few days later. Then he'll have no problem to go to work and act charming and calm and serene. He'll, and then do it all again. He knew exactly how not to get caught. He knew exactly how to make women feel safe to lure them into his car. I believe perhaps there is a question here that has never been asked and possibly never been explored. And that question is, could some kind of government testing been afoot here? Or did the radiation slash possible other U.S. government experiments his father was exposed to somehow create this male offspring, which grew into this massive murdering man? I don't know much about his sister's. Um, I'm sure they don't want to be talked about or have their names mentioned, so I'm not going to do that. But as far as I know, they did not have these urges. Men who were exposed to Agent Orange went on to have offspring with birth defects. What if this was a birth defect of the mind? Of course, Agent Orange is just an example. As Edmund, he was born in 1948 and Agent Orange was used in the Vietnam War between 1961 and 71. I know how all this must sound. <laughs> I know how that sounds, but I just find it odd that his his father was in World War II, then a nuclear weapons tester in a time when the government was doing all kinds of fucked up secret testing, such as experiments like MKUltra. And I know records show that was between 1953 and 1973, but maybe it was earlier. I mean, it was proven that documents were shredded about that testing or Maybe there were experiments we don't know about. By the way, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is 100% proven to have happened. There were lawsuits over this and the government had files destroyed about the MKUltra testing. And they spent $10 million funding this, which in today's money would be $87 million. You do not invest that much money into something you're dabbling on. MKUltra was a U.S. government experiment and it was carried out on 7,000 mostly unknowing candidates. By that, I mean they had no idea this, they, were under, they were undergoing these tests. And that was between 1950 and uh, the 1970s. Um, it was highly unethical. There was rarely consent, if all, if, if any at all, from the subjects. And Edmund's father, he would have been out of the military within this time frame as Edmund was born in 1948 but still leaves me wondering if his father was unknowingly a part of an experiment or if his reproductive organs were affected by radiation from testing nuclear weapons because something was really wrong with Edmund III Edmund the serial killer Kemper but as far as I know nothing was wrong with his sister so I don't know this theory doesn't really have too 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 long legs, I guess. This theory doesn't really have legs, but it's just something I, I was thinking about when I was researching this case. I might have to cover MKUltra in its own episode because it was really, really messed up what the government did. Um, it had bad, terrible outcomes. I remember watching a documentary on it and one guy said he had never been a violent person, uh, but he underwent this testing And one day he was walking down the street and the next thing he knew, he had killed a child. Never in his life had he been a violent man. And then suddenly and randomly, 
he killed a child on the street and he didn't remember the conscious act of doing it. And I can't remember the exact documentary. I'm going to look for that because I think I am going to cover this in a case. Um, but I remember thinking, if that's true, that's terrifying. <clears throat> okay, okay. I am, <laughs> I'm getting far off topic here. Let's get this train back on its track and talk about what Edmund's childhood was like. By the way, Edmund's father, he was also named Edmund. He's Edmund II and his son, the serial killer, Edmund, he's Edmund III. Edmund III's grandfather's name's Edmund. So it's like Edmund, Edmund II, Edmund III. So Clarnell and Edmund II, they get married after he had that career in the military. They have three kids. One of these is a boy and he names him after himself and his father, Edmund III. Clarnell and Edmund's marriage, it it broke apart. Clarnell, she was hot-tempered. She put everyone on eggshells. People were always walking around on eggshells around her and she would make her husband's life a living fucking hell. And actually, he said that suicide missions in war and working with dangerous nuclear weapons was basically more comfortable of a task to carry out than being around her by living with her, <laughs> which I mean, burn. That is a that is quite a statement. Clarnell, she's left to raise three kids on her own as her husband, he can't stand to be with her. And this leaves little Edmund with no father, only with a mean, unloving, distant mother who doesn't let him sleep upstairs with her and his sisters. Even at the age of eight years old, she must have been worried he was going to harm his sisters. I believe she even did say that to someone at one point. And I'm not sure why she had this thought. I don't know what gave her this idea but Edmund does say his mother hated him because he was a constant reminder of her failed marriage and of his father who she also hated other reasons I saw given were that she wanted him to toughen up toughen up an eight-year-old little boy by locking him in a dungeon at night that is fucked up Little Edmund, he was forced into the basement every night, entering through a trap door in the floor of the kitchen, which would be locked behind him. This to me sounds like more of a cellar or, or a dungeon situation, and he's only eight years old. He said it was terrifying because when that door closed, it was pitch black. There were rats, spiders, and cockroaches down there, and he would have to run in the pitch black where I could imagine he's thinking there's demons and witches and ghosts and rats and everything all around him. And he would have to run and he would have to find this one little chain and pull it. And that would illuminate a bare bulb so he could have light. <laughs> Any eight-year-old is terrified of the dark. Now imagine an eight-year-old being locked in a dark cellar at night with one light bulb in the center of the room they have to sprint to. That's... That is just, yeah, not cool. When I was a child, I hated going into the basement in the daytime, fully lit, just to grab my dad potatoes for dinner. At night times, that basement was a symbol of hell and terror where everything scary lurked. Nothing would have made me go down there. So I couldn't even imagine being locked down there. It would have actually changed me, I think. That would, that would have been so traumatic. I feel like I would be a different person if I had ever been locked in a dark basement as a child. This, and so I guess what I'm getting at is this probably all contributes to the monster in the making. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people had traumatic uh, childhood. Things happened to them worse or similar to that and they didn't grow up to, to do what Edmund did. His mother is where his hatred for women comes from. He was also bullied in school for being tall because he was so tall and it, it's just terrible because he has no solace anywhere in life. Not at home, not at school. Another thing his mother apparently said was that she wasn't kind to her son because, and I quote, this is a quote that I read, uh, she didn't want him to be gay. So she wasn't nice to him because she thought that he would grow up to be gay. <laughs> Some people just shouldn't have kids. Am I right? At a young age, he started killing cats so trigger warning right here i'm gonna give the first trigger warning as it has to do with harming animals children harming and torturing animals is now in the profile of serial killers and edmund kemper he did this so it's like killing animals like torturing them at a young age 
lighting fires and watching them burn where you shouldn't light fires like lighting things on fire uh, and bedwetting until over the age of 13 because I think that indicates undealt with trauma and then I think they're looking to add in um, brain injuries into that as well which I don't think that's officially in there so he did he tortured cats this is the trigger warning skip ahead now if you don't want to hear this he buried a cat alive then it died and he dug it up he dug up the corpse cut its head off and put the head on a stick that's what he was doing for fun he did kill multiple cats uh that's as in depth as i'm going to get into that because it's just really fucked up and he was around 10 years old when he started doing this he also made a comment around this age about a teacher he had a crush on and he said that he would have to kill her first if he wanted to kiss her um that is a very alarming thought process for anyone to have but particularly a young child to have it's there's definitely a lot of red flags happening here by the age of 14, Edmund, he could not handle his mother's constant berating and in unloving ways. She would tell him he was unlovable to any woman and just really fucked up things like that. It sounds like she was just a terrible, horrible mother to him. I think maybe her relationship with Edmund's sisters were a bit different. But again, I haven't read too much about, about them or their lives. He had been out of uh, contact with his father for a long time, but he had the idea to find him and, and perhaps live with him and find love there. He ran away to find his father and he did, but his father had a new family and didn't really want anything to do with Edmund, which I mean, that's his own son, which it just would have been absolutely heartbreaking for little Edmund. Uh, first of all, he like Edmund he would have had this idea in his head that he could live a better life with his father who would love him and then he gets there and his fantasies are just thrashed but not only that he sees his father with his new family and he's exiled his father's like no you know no no not you I have other kids now and to Edmund it's probably like what you have other kids now that you love more I'm your son too anyways Edmund he is forced to go back to his mother who is a nightmare but he, he doesn't go back to his mother he ends up going to live with his father's parents so his grandparents and this is when he was 15 years old despite Clarnell's warning Clarnell had told her ex-husband don't be surprised if he kills them so Clarnell she knew there was something evil in her son she knew that he wasn't right his grandmother seemed to be just as distant and unloving as his mother, unfortunately, and only reminded him of all that rejection. So 10 months goes by of him and his grandmother fighting and feuding. They did not get along. One day, Edmund's grandfather, he goes, he leaves the home. He goes to run errands and his grandmother and him get into a fight and Edmund, he grabbed his 22 caliber rifle, which by the way, was a gift from his grandfather. Uh, and he was walking away he was they got into this fight he grabs the gun he starts walking away his grandmother shouts at him to leave the birds alone she did not like at all that he had been shooting the birds uh and she gives this one final demand and he couldn't take it anymore he turned around and he shot her and she died then he stabbed her lifeless body three times in the back then dragged her into the bedroom that is like a scene from a horror movie imagine this farmhouse on top of a mountain because it was a farmhouse on top of the mountain and that scene it's it's chilling I'd imagine Edmund was composed and calm the entire time as well which is what this is what really makes that image all the more shocking he's also over six foot tall even at the age of 15 which makes me think of a, a scene from the movie Halloween it's, it's a very Michael Myers very Michael Myersy. This is Edmund Kemper really reminds me of of that character. He then waited for his grandfather to return home and he didn't want his his grandfather to be sad because of what he had done. He this it just blows my mind. He didn't want his grandfather to see his dead wife. So to save him that pain, to protect him from that pain, he shot and killed his grandfather in the driveway when he got home. He kills his grandmother out of rage then kills his grandfather out of sympathy 
His grandfather was the only man he ever kills. The rest of his victims from here on out are women. And his grandfather is the only victim he kills with this sympathetic reasoning. So Edmund, he calls his mother and he tells them what he's done. He's like, I killed them. And she says, well, call police. Um, and I have no idea. And he does. He does call 911. And I do not know what that 911 call uh, was, what he said in that 911 call. But I am sure if there's ever a recording of that, it would just be so haunting. Then he calls police. Okay. So he's waiting outside for them. He sits on the porch with a gun in his hand and he waits patiently for police to arrive. He just sits there after killing his grandparents, sitting there peacefully. Pretty sure that is an exact scene from a Halloween movie. It's when after Michael Myers, when he's a young boy, he kills his stepfather and his sister and his, and his sister's boyfriend. Uh, but instead of a gun, it's a knife. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but this, yeah, a lot of things about Edmund Kemper remind me of Michael Myers. As far as I know, he complied with police. He didn't make a scene. He didn't try to harm them. He just went stoically to face his punishment. And it was for these murders he was put into psychiatric care for the criminally insane until the age of 21 when he was released on probation. During his time there, he was in with violent, violent offenders who had committed depraved acts such as violent rapes and murders. And Edmund, he somehow gained access to their files. And this is basically where he learned about sex. So he was reading about these horrific, gruesome crimes that these insane, violent criminals had carried out on people. And he's only 15. I'm going to do another trigger warning here. Skip ahead because I'm going to talk about Edmund's depraved sexual desires and they they're absolutely just terrible so skip ahead now I believe that Edmund's crimes were motivated by his sexual desires to kill women it wasn't the actual sexual acts that turned him on it wasn't raping the bodies it was murdering and dismembering the women that turned him on and that's why he would rape their decapitated head once they were no longer alive he wanted to humiliate them and this is where his sexual gratification came from he later admits to this and says as a child it would uh, turn him on to rip the heads off barbie dolls it was the popping sound and removing of the head that gave him sexual satisfaction I do not know exactly what he read in other patients' files when he was there, but I could imagine he gathered many ideas from them, including the idea to make sure the woman did not survive the attack because that's how he would get caught. And I, he learned that from these criminals who had got caught. I think one of them had, had even said to him one time, if you're going to do it, make sure you kill her because you'll get caught. 15. 15 years old, hanging out with hanging out in there he was by all accounts a perfect patient during his his time there he was never rude or violent he was helpful and he even helped with patients needs acting as an aide for the nurses and doctors in there he was bringing them their medicine and doing stuff like that they said he was a good worker and he and he took pride in it so he was also involved in giving these like psychiatric tests and he learned a lot from knowing how these tests work all of his time spent in there he was just learning and observing and eventually he figured out what exactly the doctors needed to hear him say to believe he was no longer a threat his time spent as a patient there it only educated him on how to work the system and it allowed him to gather sick depraved ideas at first he was diagnosed as being paranoid schizophrenic but that diagnosis it was it was inaccurate he was just a sick twisted intelligent individual now weaponizing information he was given access to while being treated on his 21st birthday he was released on probation to the care of his mother the doctors they did not want this to happen they advised against this they did not want Edmund to ever see his mother again because clearly through all the therapy he did when he was in there she was a huge source of his rage. But there he was, living with his mother. 
By this time, she had started working at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Everyone she worked with seemed to find her lovely and friendly. None of her sunny disposition was reserved for Edmund, though. Edmund, he was very awkward as a 21-year-old. He had no idea how to speak to women. He had no idea how to be a normal 21-year-old. He had been locked up with criminally insane rapists and murderers, and he had been learning from them. So his reality was different from that of most youths. And he knew this. He was no way in the dark about his behaviors and thoughts about not being normal. But he knew how to mask it. He knew what society needed to see and how he had to act in order to slip under the radar. And this is what makes him so dangerous. One day he asks his mom, Mom, do you know any women you could set me up with from the campus? Because she was around a lot of university girls. And he really, he desperately wanted to go out on a date. He wanted to talk to women. He wanted to socialize, but he didn't know how. He couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. And his mother tells him, no, you're not good enough to date any of the woman, women. You're just like your father. You don't deserve them. Which I mean, ouch. According to Edmund, he and his mother, they were always fighting. In these, there were verbal fights. I, don't, I didn't hear if any of them turned physical, but I don't believe they did. So they would get into these crazy, absolutely volatile, disgusting verbal fights. Screaming, yelling, just vicious. And these fights were loud and angry. And he said that if she were a man in these fights, he would have he would have hit her like it would have turned to fist fights it was that kind of like rage and and violence behind these fights Edmund was thinking what he wanted to do with his life and he decided he wanted to join the police force he wanted to be a cop and I believe he even went through the training but he was just too big and he was unable uh to join the police force so I'm not sure what the height and weight criteria is what those requirements are for police but he was well over the limit uh, in that. Yeah, this would have made him not happy. I saw pictures of Edmund standing beside police officers and a person who I would say is maybe five, six. They look like a child standing beside him because he's like nearly seven feet tall. He was massive. So I could imagine he couldn't get in and out of the car fast enough or maybe he couldn't pass like the physicals. But also, I mean, he did have two murders on his record already but he was a child so I'm not sure if they could have saw that maybe that had something to do with it uh since he couldn't join the police force he ended up taking a job for the state in the division of highways which I guess means he drives around on the highways and reports back about the road conditions or you know how the roads are going I'm not quite sure what exactly his duties were but I could imagine this job gave him lots of time to drive on the highways notice the amount of hitchhikers and just be brewing in his dark thoughts and fantasies Edmund, he went, he got this job and then he, he moved out from his mother's home and he bought a motorcycle. So, so things started to come together in his life. He got away from his mother. He got a job working for the state. He got a motorcycle, but eventually he got into a motorcycle accident and that led to him winning a $15,000 lawsuit. So in today's money, that would have been about a $90,000 payout. With the payout he received from his accident, he bought a car. I mean, not all the money, some of it. And he, this car was a yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy. This car would be the last ride for six women. Picking up hitchhikers at first was a way for him to get good at talking to people. He didn't only pick up women. He said it didn't matter unless he was, quote, looking to do someone in. In which case, then he would uh, only pick up women. Before his first hitchhiking victim, he claims to have given rides to over 100 people. It was his way for him to talk to people, to exercise social skills, and also learn who would and wouldn't get into the car with him. And also, which mannerisms to use to make people feel comfortable. For instance, he says that some people wouldn't get in his car because he was a big guy on his own. So he wondered if he could change people's perspective, if that would work. And it did. He says in an interview uh, that when he saw a hitchhiker up ahead, so he's driving down the road, he'd see a hitchhiker up ahead. He would start to look at things and look around like he was assessing if he had enough time to pick them up. 
because he was busy. That's the persona he wanted to put on. So as he was getting a bit closer and they could see the person driving the car, like the hitchhiker standing on the road could see inside of the car, he would start doing things like looking at his watch, looking busy, looking around his car, looking in the rearview mirror, looking ahead, kind of looking like, oh, do I have time to do this? And he would do that like when he stopped the car, he'd he'd be like, where are you going? Or they'd be like, oh, I'm going here. Can you take me here? And he'd like look at his watch. And he would also say things like, oh, yeah, maybe I, I have time to give you a ride. And he would say things of that nature. So he wasn't like pulling up looking at them like he wanted to murder them and like telling them to get in his car he was offering them the opportunity to choose basically he wanted to give off a look that he was a busy businessman and he might not have time to take them where they need to go and he most certainly wouldn't have time to murder them and this worked then he started keeping odd items in his car such as plastic bags which i mean that's not so weird But also he stashed blankets, handcuffs, knives, guns. Edmund, he was released from the psychiatric hospital in December of 1969, and he managed to keep his fantastic passion, as he called it, at bay until May 7th, 1972. Not even two years since his release, he was driving around when he notices two women hitchhiking. These two women are both 18 years old. They are students at a university, and their names are Marianne Pesh and Anita Luchessa. They are about an hour away from Stanford University. That's where they are headed to visit uh, when Edmund offers them a ride. He sees them hitchhiking. He stops to pick them up. Uh, and they said they're going to Stanford University. They had it on a sign, actually, so he knew where they were going. So he already knew a location to give them. And he was like, oh, I'm heading to San Paulo, somewhere like this. Oh, I'm heading to this area. Uh, Yeah, I can give you a ride all the way there. And he said they were so excited, and they jumped in his car. He actually retells this entire story um, in an interview, which I could actually play. Um, I'll just, actually, yeah, maybe I'll just find that interview and I'll play it for you. They meet the different people and they talk with people. That by the time they're leaving Berkeley, right, it's all about who gets the front seat and who gets the back seat. So she, she, uh, you know, she opened the door and asked where uh, I was headed. And it said Stanford right on the the sign they were holding up. And I said, I'm going to Palo Alto. I can drop you off. Oh, great! And she jumps in, grabs her stuff, jumps in, opens the back seat up for her friend who's standing there looking at me, long and serious about whether or not, because I could tell at the time, she knows better than to get in. Single adult, it's a coupe instead of a four-door car, so she cannot get out other than through the front seat. So that's all the warning signs of not getting in with a single, you know, in that kind of a situation. Uh, All of the things were wrong about it. But when I drove up, I pulled that little stunt of looking at my watch. You know, do I have time to pick them up? And you wouldn't believe how much effect that kind of thing has. And when she kept staring at me and looking, looking for something wrong in my eyes, I gave this look back like, I don't understand. Why are you looking at me like this? I gave her that back, and she says, oh, this guy's a dork. He's innocent as hell. She gets in. Okay. We're driving along, and I'm looking at this young lady in the rearview mirror. And I look back at it years later, and I'm saying, she kept looking me back, too, right in the eyeballs. I'm wearing dark glasses, but they're not totally dark. And I'm realizing now that she could see me looking at her, and she was looking right back at me. And instead of saying something to me, like, what are you looking at? Or, hey, maybe you ought to drop us off or something like that. She just kept looking back at me. And I'm looking at her, and she keeps looking at me. I'm thinking she's playing this little game. It's uh, it's not really teasing, so to speak. It's just this little psychological game back and forth that men and women do sometimes. So that was him uh, talking about his first two victims that he picked up and after driving for about an hour with them he was chatting with them he liked one of them more than the other he said one of them was stuck up and kind of like posh and the other one was really nice and chatty and so he was getting to know them and then he pulled off into a wooded area an area he was familiar with because of his job working for the State Department for the roads. He managed to handcuff Marianne and put a bag over her head. He then shoved Anita in the trunk. He told them he was going to take them to his apartment and force them to have unconsensual sex with him. 
but really he was going to kill them right there and then. This is where Edmund Kemper is much different from Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, he could not talk to his victims for hardly any amount of time because as soon as he got to know anything about them, it humanized them to him and then he couldn't kill them. He wouldn't want to kill them once he saw them as human beings. But Edmund, he's acting like a gentleman. He's chatting with them for up to an hour, knowing full well he is going to kill them and do terrible things to their bodies. They are very much humans to him. Or maybe not. So to me, this shows that Edmund either didn't care if he humanized his victims or he never could see women as humans no matter how much he talked to them because he knew quite a bit about them. He was like, oh yeah, Marianne, she had hitchhiked lots. She had been in Europe for a while hitchhiking. She was hitchhiking around. They were roommates. Their third roommate was supposed to come, but then she didn't want to. Like he knows a lot about them. He knows a lot about them. Um, he said the girl who, who he was talking about who was like looking at him, she was the one who like had experienced hitchhiking and she didn't really know if she should get in the car, but then they did. He knew a lot about them basically. Later he speaks of the two women saying how naive they were, uh, basically blaming them for, their, for him murdering them. After he had Anita in the trunk of his car he took the handcuffed Marianne into the woods and she did manage to chew through the bag on her head which is just a very um haunting scene to imagine but this did not stop Edmund from attempting to smother her then uh, stabbing her in the back where the knife blade lodged in her bone Edmund was surprised that stabbing someone didn't kill them instantly so he ended up uh slitting her throat he didn't want Anita to hear the struggle or see her friend die, and that's why he said he separated them. So again, we have this weird, almost politeness where he believes he has to do this, he has to kill, but he's trying to do it in the least frightening way possible. He's not getting any gratification from scaring these women. He actually seems to be kind of steering away from doing that. He's worried about what the girl in the trunk of his car is going to hear and he wants to keep her calm in fact he actually apologizes to anita at one point when he accidentally he like touched her breast by accident with like the back of his hand like brushed her breast when he was forcing her into the trunk and this embarrassed him he was embarrassed by this that he had touched her breast yet he goes into the woods and then brutally murders her friend and to him that's fine that's like not a bad thing to do to him I guess in that point it, although he knows it's wrong he does know it's wrong but for some reason touching accidentally touching a woman's breast just totally flusters him and makes him apologize but then he'll go do these like horrific things so he comes back to the car he opens the trunk and he tells Anita uh, her friend is still alive he just he just punched her in the face he says this because he doesn't want to alarm Anita but then before she can, before she even knows what's happening he stabs her to death. What what the actual fuck is this? I do not understand. And I find it hard to believe he is sane, but he is. And he actually recounts these events as well, which I will play now. And I think, whoa, I don't want her to know what happened. I said, your friend got smart with me. She'd been getting really smart with me a lot, but I never hit her. I killed her, but I didn't hit her. I said... Your friend got smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help. She's about to die. Why, do, why does she have to know that? I couldn't deal with telling her that. And when I attacked her, she didn't at first realize what was happening. It didn't go through. She had very heavy coveralls on. It knocked her right up into the lid of the car. But it didn't pierce the clothing. So it wasn't that swell a knife anyway. I went out and bought a, a pawn shop huge knife. And uh, I kept on just mindlessly attacking. She falls back into the trunk. I just killed a young woman. I slammed down the lid of the trunk. She isn't dead. She's dying. Now with both Mary Ann and Anita dead, he puts both the bodies in the trunk of his car and he drives off. As he is heading to his apartment with the two bodies in his trunk, he gets stopped by a police officer because his taillight is broken because his taillight is broken he gets stopped by a police officer 
I would imagine this taillight may have gotten broken when he was forcing Anita in, into his trunk perhaps. So this officer, he has no idea how close he came to being in the trunk that day because Edmund later says if that cop would have asked him to open the trunk, he would have killed him right there. Probably just threw his body in the trunk too. But the officer didn't and Edmund, he went on his way. He went home. So I'm going to put another trigger warning here because uh, this is when the dismemberment and necrophilia happens. This is basically why Edmund had killed the two girls. It wasn't to kill them. He wasn't, he didn't seem to be into bloodlust, but he did like to have complete control over them. And to do this, he believed he had to kill them. So now he's on the way to do the thing that motivates his crime. And it is very sick very disgusting so if you want to skip ahead maybe one minute uh you you don't have to hear this i am going to put this as delicate as possible but it is still very graphic once at his apartment he carried the bodies uh that he had wrapped in blankets into his bedroom he carries them into his apartment and then into his bedroom nobody sees him how i do not know he then undresses them photographs them dismembers them and has sexual interactions with their body parts and he really he said he really took his time with this he he wanted to stop and embrace the completeness in which he had over the women's body he enjoyed this process this is what gave him sexual pleasure it's just so fucked up he then went into the mountains dug a grave and buried the remains except for their heads uh, the heads he again used for his sexual pleasure. And th- th- there's an act called irrumation, I think is the pronunciation of it. I don't know. This is a new word to me. So it's called irrumation um, before throwing them into a ravine. He wanted to revisit the graves later, so he memorized its location. Four months after he murdered the two 18-year-old girls, Edmund, he set out on the roads with the intention to kill again. The way he describes his urges to kill is very passionate. And I will play a bit more of his recorded interviews later because he talked nonstop about his killings. He most likely enjoyed reliving them openly. And since he was caught, he could talk to so many people about them. He could do interviews and he did. He he talked a lot. He talked to police. He talked to reporters. He did interviews. He he was a real, real chatty Cathy. September 14th, 1972, Akoku was only 15 years old. She was on her way to dance class when she missed her bus. And so she began to hitchhike to class. And that's when Edmund saw her and offered her a ride. The petite little girl, she did not stand a chance against this giant monster. He knew how old she was, but it didn't deter him. Probably just the opposite, I think. His sick, twisted mind was sexually motivated to have complete control over his victim. And Aiko, she was at his mercy. He he said at first he just showed her the gun. So they were driving and he shows her a gun. And he said that really scared her. But then he put it away and she got even more scared, which he found odd. But I think maybe the realization of the reality in front of her was probably sinking in and it had nothing to do with the whereabouts of the gun. But to him, he couldn't understand this. He doesn't understand how regular people's brains work. He doesn't understand normal society, how it functions, how these, how we think. He doesn't, he can't understand this. Edmund pulled into a wooded area. He got out of the vehicle and in doing so, he locked himself out of the car a co and the gun were now locked in the car and edmund was locked outside of the vehicle eventually edmund gained entry back into the vehicle and he was baffled that a co didn't go for his gun to shoot him but he thinks maybe she was too scared to even think about it but i really wish she would have got that fucking gun because just like he had done with marianne and anita he savagely took a co's life he smothered her until she was unconscious. Then he raped her and then strangled her to death. He put her body in the trunk of the vehicle, then went to the bar. He was just sitting in a bar, having a drink, chatting it up casually with a dead 15-year-old girl in the trunk of his car, parked outside of the bar. When he was done in the bar, he went outside, opened his trunk, and 
just stared at her. He was enjoying this. He was enjoying coming back out to his car, opening the trunk and seeing what he had done. It, he was, he enjoyed that, which is just so fucked up. He brought a Ko's body uh, back to his apartment. He took her to his bedroom like he had done with his first two victims and he dismembered her body there. He then took her head back out to his car and placed it in the trunk. The next day he went to his final psychiatric appointment because remember he is still on probation for murdering his grandparents when he was 15 years old. And let me just read to you what the psychiatrist wrote in Edmund's report that day. Quote, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illness. It is in my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or any members of society since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expungement of his juvenile records, unquote. That's right, the double murder was now expunged from his record, and he was completely free. He drove away from that appointment that day with a co's head in the trunk of his car. After this psychiatrist writing in the note, oh, to help him have more freedom as an adult. I think we should clear him of these murders. He has a head in the trunk of his car. And you're writing this about who the, this, <laughs> talk about not doing your fucking job. Or I don't know, maybe Edmund was just so cunning and so smart that he could just trick anybody. But I mean, this kind of just shows you that in society, in these situations, sometimes there's just boxes to tick. And if you learn the system and if you learn how to get those boxes ticked, you can be driving around with heads in the trunk of your car, having an expunged record from your previous murders when you were 15 years old. It's just, it's a flawed system, very flawed system. He later discards of Ako's uh, remains in the uh, mountains. So he goes out there and he, again, just discards them. I'm not sure if he buried those remains or if he threw them into a ravine or scattered them around but he that's how he got rid of uh, her remains in one of the many interviews Edmund was in he talks about a moment where he is carrying a human head in a camera bag up the stairs to his apartment and he passes a young couple in love on the on the stairway and he and he says hello to them or good evening and he's looking at them and he's thinking oh I would really love to be going on a date and it's just it's so haunting and I'm gonna play that clip now her reality, not mine. Some people go crazy at that point. I felt it. It was one hell of a tweak. I mean, to just flip out and not know where I was. To be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it. Walking up to my apartment past a happy young couple coming down the stairs who nodded and smiled at me as they went by. Good evening. And they're going out on a date where I'd love to be going. And I'm aware of both of these realities. And the, dis the distance between those two is so dramatic, so amazing, so violent, that that really, I could feel the wheels squeaking inside. That was really pulling on it. And I imagine at that point some people break. But I didn't literally go insane. I didn't get lost. This just shows us that he knows what he is doing is fucked up. He... He knows. He knows that his reality is not everyone else's reality, yet he won't go into this reality where he's not killing and beheaded women. It's just, I, it's, it, yeah, it, you would think he's insane, but he is not insane. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he thinks about it in philosophical ways, like he's thinking about this. This is where I'm going to end this week's episode. This is going to be a two-parter. Originally, I was going to do all of this in one episode, but with me slicing in uh, some of the interviews that he's done, it was just going to run way too long. So I'm going to split this up into two. I have linked the sources of where I got those interviews from in my show notes. 
and I will be playing more of those in the next episode which will be out next Friday yeah I I didn't I had no idea it was going to be a two-parter when I first started writing this but there's just so much information out there next week's episode will be the final part of this it's not going to be a three-parter I don't think no I know I know it won't be a three-parter but it will be a two-parter and next week I there is still so much to cover he all all in all he had 10 victims and we will talk about that next week and it is just a very shocking case and it just gets more and more shocking as we go so yeah I'm gonna end things there and I will see you next week for part two Head on over to Hell No, A True Crime Podcast on Instagram. That's Hell No underscore A True Crime Podcast on Instagram. Same as TikTok. I'm on TikTok now where I release brief descriptions of the cases I'm going to be covering. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere that allows you to give a rating, I would really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you just click that follow button on whatever platform you can. So we'll see you next week for the second part of the Edmund Kemper co-ed butcher case. I'm going to try to keep all the graphic details to a minimum because I, I, yeah, I know that this case is, is really, really messed up. But thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. 